Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're continuing on in the book of Acts. Last week we had an interesting interlude, and I hope you get to hear that. We had Pastor Don Preston and Pastor William Bell, and they really gave an excellent overview of the kingdom of God as described in Acts and all the Old Testament references. It was a very, very interesting and answered a lot of Mark's questions. And so we're uh, very excited about that one. So be sure to listen to that one. Today we're in Acts chapter 19. We'll be starting at verse 23. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Craig, would you lead us, please? Yeah, sure, Tom. Dearly Father, we just uh, come before you right now. We thank you for a new day of life. We thank you for your provision for us. Great is your faithfulness every morning. We pray now by your Holy Spirit that you would open our hearts and minds to receive uh, your word and instruction and that it would be uh, a blessing to us all and that we would be able to be uh, better equipped uh, to face the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 And welcome back, Mark. Well, glad to be with everyone. We have been going through the book of Acts and looking at it as the systematic uh, restoration of Israel and the fulfillment in detail of all the promises made to Israel by their prophets through uh, many centuries. And we are down to chapter 19, and it occurs to me that really in Ephesus, Asia, which is the modern region of far western Turkey, that we have really the last detailed description of of Paul's work in evangelizing an entire province. He does go places after this, but we're not given much detail about some of the places that he goes after this, other than Rome at the end, which is kind of the goal that he's been working towards for, uh, for many, many years. So we talked a little bit last week about how special his work in Asia was and how the book of Revelation or the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John was addressed to the churches in Asia, including the one here in Ephesus. And perhaps the teaching of of Paul reached a a great maturity uh, in this area. And uh, William pointed out that when we go to Ephesians chapter 2, we see 
the mystery of God's eternal purpose clearly revealed how that the Judean and the Gentile would be made one, would be recreated into God's new creation, the perfect uh, bride for his son, which old Israel never could be, and uh, the wall of enmity broken down. And, and again, we see over and over again how every part of the Bible completely refutes these modern ideas of uh, dispensationalism and Christian Zionism and many other isms and schisms, divisions, uh, Protestant creeds, and so on that have have divided and confused the world and uh, and prevented people from seeing the magnificence and perfection of God's kingdom. But uh, Paul's about to finish up his teaching in Ephesus, and uh, he sends some of his assistants on to Macedonia. He's going to make a loop through Macedonia and Greece before going back to Jerusalem, which he wants to do before he goes to Rome. And he's kind of finished his work, but he's lingering to give them a head start. And then we have uh, this other slide, so to speak, that Luke paints for us, a slide here that begins in verse 23. And uh, let's just read uh, verses 23 through 28 to get a picture of this significant event. And at the same time there arose no small stir about that way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods, which are made with hands, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath, and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. All right. Thank you very much, Leslie. Now, I warned Leslie that we might have to make some corrections to the King James Version, and we... We need to start right off with this Diana of the Ephesians because the word in the Greek is Artemis. And there is a co-identity of Diana with Artemis, but Artemis is the real word, and Artemis is the Asian version of the Greek god Diana. As happened in many places, when the Greek culture primarily through the means of Alexander the Great, swept over a new region, they would uh, study the local gods, and then they would try to recognize which one of their Greek pantheon was probably being called by a different name by the locals. And so this would have been the mechanism greatly simplified, of course, how that the local god Artemis came to be identified as Diana. But Artemis goes back much further and is a much more powerful deity than Diana was to the Greeks. Diana, a slightly lesser goddess, 
than some of them. But Artemis really can be traced back to the mother goddess of the Phoenicians and the uh, Middle East over there. And she was, in the locals' mind, she was really the greatest goddess, whereas if you were over in Greece, she would not have been the greatest goddess. And this temple that was a mile and a half north, uh, north some direction north of the uh, proper city of Ephesus, was one of the great marvels of the world. It was four times the size of the famous surviving temple in Athens, Parthenon. It was huge. It was one of the most magnificent structures in the world. And this was the greatest temple to the greatest goddess in the minds of these local Ephesians. So the the King James tends to kind of paper over some of that background that goes back way beyond the conquest of the area by the Greek culture under Alexander the Great. There had been an earlier temple there that uh, I think burned, uh, which gave them the opportunity to build this uh, this marvel that is the temple that is being alluded to here in this paragraph. People would travel from all over the world to go to this temple, just like the Judeans would travel from the corners of the earth to go to the temple in Jerusalem, another wonder of the world. They would come in, a, and then these silver smiths would make these little votive shrines which the pilgrims could purchase and then leave as an offering there. And I'm sure that we have a little detail of that cult. I'm not aware of what it is, but purchasing these shrines was apparently part of it. So there was a whole guild of uh, silversmiths, metal workers uh, there in that area, and they probably had similar status to the Judean synagogues where the Roman government delegated uh, what would be the equivalent of our municipal courts and justice of the peace dealings to uh, trade guilds or community associations, uh, which actually makes a little bit of sense uh, as far as efficiency of of government. So they were a quasi-legal organization uh, in all probability, here and they're getting worried because this fellow Paul, or we could think of this pestilent fellow Paul, has persuaded a great number of people, not just in the city of Ephesus, but in the entire province of Asia, to go over to his way of thinking. He insists that gods made by hands are not gods at all. So he's worried about their business going downhill which is understandable, I guess, for anyone in hard times. But he's also worried about Artemis being dragged down from her preeminence, which, again, requires the background to to go beyond Diana back to the word Artemis, uh, the Artemis of the Ephesians. And so he was able to stir up a mob here who started this chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Are there any other thoughts or comments here? No comment. All right, well then let's read uh, 29 through 33, please. And the whole city was filled with confusion, and having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. 
And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, and the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with the hand, and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So, out of the tradesmen's guild, the seed of a mob is uh, is sown and stirred up, and they're able to uh, rush over to the theater and pick up a lot more people as they are going. This was a most magnificent theater. I believe it was carved into a a hillside, and it had a large capacity. I think like thirty thousand, if I remember correctly. It would have been the site of their normal town meetings, but this was not a normal meeting. Two of Paul's companions who are still in Ephesus with him from Macedonia are swept into it, and scholars have speculated that Luke's detailed account could possibly be a result of him interviewing one or both of these men, Gaius or Aristarchus. Luke apparently did a very uh, detailed research for his two-part history of the Christians. Part one we know is the Gospel of Luke, where he likely interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, for some of the detailed information he has that no other Gospel writer has about the early years of uh, Jesus' life. Here he shows great detail for this mob rushing into the theater of Ephesus. So he may or may not have interviewed one or both of these men, Gaius or Aristarchus. Paul wanted to go right into this uh, maelstrom. He doesn't seem, after that episode on the road to Damascus way back in the book of Acts, he doesn't seem to be afflicted with cowardice at all. And after that, he he kind of viewed himself as being uh, resurrected from the dead, uh, the spiritually dead, that is. And he seems to have no qualms uh, or, or very few. So he's ready to rush in there, but the disciples would not allow him. And then I find verse 31 quite interesting, where some of the Asiarchs who were well disposed to him also urged him not to go into the theater. These were political leaders in the province of Asia, men who had a lot of influence and power. And the fact that they were well disposed to Paul just reminds us of what we have seen thus far in the book and will continue to see that the Roman government was not really the enemy of the gospel at all, even though I I grew up being told that over and over again, that Rome was the great persecutor of God's people. I mean, yes, you know, for three and a half years, there was very troublesome times uh, during the war between Judea and Rome, but, well, and, and leading up to that, when Nero began wedding the power of Rome 
to the Judean uh, political machine to persecute the Christians. This is the great tribulation that people try to apply to the present day and so on. So there were some rough times from Rome, but they were very limited in duration and magnitude. And again, at this point, it's not the governmental authorities of the other nations, but it is the Judean authorities who are the enemy of Paul and of the way. There's uh, complete chaos in this assembly. They've swept people along who had no idea what the reason for this meeting was. And uh, some manuscripts say that this uh, Judean Alexander was uh, dragged up out of the crowd. Some manuscripts suggest that he is being put forward by the Judeans. We don't know for sure, but we do know that there is absolute chaos going on. Alexander is probably recognized by some of the leaders of this as one who does not recognize Artemis as the great mother goddess as they do. And so they kept up this chant that they had had as they marched through the city, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And again, we suggest if you have a King James to kind of cross through Diana and write in Artemis there. So we're getting to see uh, democracy in action. Democracy is just a breath away from mobocracy and mob rule, uh, sadly, in, in many cases. And uh, we have a, a very dangerous uh, metastable situation here. Thoughts on this paragraph? All right. Then let us continue. 35 through 41, please. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen, which are with him, have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies. Let them plead one another. But if you inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. Great, very good. The town clerk would have been the official responsible for calling the proper town meetings in the theater, and it's very likely that he was also the one who would be held accountable for any riotous behavior or any unlawful assemblies uh, being held there. In the Roman world, there were not garrison troops in most of the cities. Jerusalem was a kind of an exception. It was a trouble spot. But the cities were expected to manage their own affairs, just like the, the synagogue communities, the trade guild communities. They were 
responsible for managing their own affairs and uh, keeping the Pax Romana or, or peace and order and respect for the rights of the people. So this is a very serious a breach that has occurred here, and the town clerk is undoubtedly very concerned about what's going on and works and works to get these this mob who's who are chanting over and over about Artemis to calm down and finally to listen to him. And he tries to dispel their fears by by just stating uh, what they believe, that Ephesus is the temple warden of the great Artemis and of the image that fell down from the sky. The King James says fell from Jupiter. Jupiter does not appear in the Greek. It's uh, it's a word, the optates, ose, I can't pronounce Greek, but it means something that fell down from the sky. But of course, they view Jupiter as Zeus, as the supreme god, so it's anything that falls in the sky comes from God. So it, it's a related term, but it's not, the name Jupiter does not appear in the original manuscripts there. There were several of these images purported to have fallen out of space that were in some of these ancient pagan temples. Some were meteorites, some are of apocryphal origin, but they did try to use these things that fell out of the sky as supporting evidence for the magnificence of of their uh, deity or temple or so on. So he mentions all of this and basically acts like everyone in the world is aware of these facts. They're indisputable and nothing these men that you've brought forward could say could change that. They are not guilty of sacrilege nor of blasphemy against our goddess. And perhaps he's being a little presumptuous in stating that, you know, in a blanket way, but he still confidently proceeds. He suggests that if this crafts guild has a case to bring, that they should bring it up before the courts or before the proconsuls and make their charges through the normal channels prescribed under Roman law. If you want further action, the matter will be settled in the lawful assembly. We are in danger of being charged with a riotous assembly for today's action, and we will have no justification for what has happened here today. So in saying this, he dismisses the assembly. And of course, this word assembly is the word ecclesia, so poorly rendered uh, by the English word church. And it is, it's the same word uh, that we, we say as the called out assembly. The church is not a proper name. It's just merely a description of God's people. Their proper name is, is really Israel. They are the assembly of God, the called out people of God, called out of the world and into the body of Christ. And it's unfortunate that we use the word church as a proper noun, and so many people have the building or the institution with the clergy and secretaries and programs and institutions uh, confused with the magnificence of God's eternal purpose and his new creation, his recreated uh, Israel. All right, any thoughts on my ramblings or this paragraph?
I didn't call it rambling. That that was great exegesis and some great uh, historical and background information. So really appreciated it very much. Um, also, just a couple of things that we see here as well from a practical point of view, and that was looking at what Paul was facing in his day. He was dealing with things that had a tremendous impact on the economy of the country. And, of course, you know, money is one of those issues that people war over, go to war over. We've seen a lot of that and still see it today. You know, uh, these wars are economically based in many ways. And then on top of that, we also see the providence of God in protecting his life because there was some reason that they didn't want him to venture into that theater, and uh, they saw or foresaw danger that he probably didn't see, and sometimes it's good for us to be wise and listen to other people when you know we may have the courage to do something. Not that we're not being courageous, it's just a matter of practicality in some ways. And Paul, on more than one occasion, had some of his brethren to help him to maneuver through some very dangerous issues that he had in life. and uh, But yet, it shows also how powerful the gospel can be in a world that seems so hostile and that, that there seem to be so many forces working against the gospel. And yet, if it is proclaimed and taught, God gives the increase. He is the power of the gospel. And so that just lets us know that we just have to be faithful enough as stewards to present it. Oh, that's, those are great thoughts, William. Thank you very much. Don mentioned last week a reference, which I failed to write down, about a prophecy that in Israel's last days, the gods of the earth would be put down, or I, I don't remember. Do you, do you happen to remember what he was referring to? I'm not. Uh, I don't know that I remember. I know there's a background text about you know, these idols in Isaiah 44, but I'm not sure if that's the one he was talking about. Okay, well, maybe he didn't mention it in particular here. I'm skimming through Isaiah 44 here. Yeah, around 10 through 20. It's really most yeah, of the okay. chapter, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, in verse 9 of Isaiah 44, those who form a carved image are all of them vanity, their delights don't profit, they are their own witnesses. They don't see or know, but they will be ashamed. Who has formed a god and a molten image to no profit? Behold, all his companions shall be ashamed, and the craftsmen, they are from men. They will assemble, all of them shall stand, they shall dread, they shall be ashamed together. Uh, it goes on and on here talking about the different ways you can carve a, or make a graven image burn, etc., and pray to them, ashes. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You shall not forget me. So it doesn't, there, it doesn't specifically mention this passage about overcoming these, uh, these foreign gods, but it certainly dismisses them as the vanity of man's own heart and man's own creation a creation of man where the creature is worshiping one of their own creations rather than worshiping their creator. All right, so we, we are seeing, again, in the old days of physical Israel, Yahweh was considered a regional god of Palestine. 
and every area had their own Moab and Edom and all these other little things. They had their own, you know, gods. Egypt had their gods, Assyria, Babylon, and so on. But now we have just seen that in one of the leading centers of pagan worship in the entire Roman world, that the true God of Israel is being proclaimed and is turning everything upside down, as, as William explained, uh, causing economic, uh, not necessarily chaos, but upheavals, certainly, and disruptions, scaring people over losing their livelihood, reaching into the government, into high officials in the province, and so on. So it's really being taken up a notch from the days of the kingdom of David and Solomon and their successors who were who were significantly lesser than even they were. We're seeing the kingdom of God fulfilling this magnificent vision of Daniel where the little pebble becomes this huge monolith that completely crushes all the kingdoms of the earth and turns them to dust. All right, now this leads right into a chapter 20. These, these chapter breaks, again, are just artificial, the invention of modern man. But let's go right into a chap, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples, and embraced them, and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts, and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece, and there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia, and there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychius, and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas, and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. All right, very good. So, again, Luke had set the stage that this uproar occurred after Paul's work in Ephesus was more or less completed, and as he's making preparations to uh, make this long, circuitous journey uh, back to Jerusalem and then to Rome, a big, huge bow or figure eight or something. But this kind of triggered him uh, going on his way. After this uproar ends, he calls all the disciples in the area, it presumably gives them a last bit of encouragement and exhortation and then uh, sets out and crosses into Macedonia. Now this is the area of Constantinople which that's not even called that anymore right? Istanbul, right? Turkey. <laughs> a place I would kind of like to go but it's not very far. It's just you can see across the, the Bosphorus there or, or the little straits that, uh, or the Black Sea is flowing down into the Mediterranean Sea. There's two real tight spots there and he crossed over and then made his way around. Philippi would have been the first major city. And then a, an arc up through Berea and Thessalonica 
before going down into the lower part of Greece, Achaia, where Athens and Corinth were. And this could have taken uh, quite a while. And some scholars believe that he went up to Illyricum, across the way from Italy and north of, uh, north of Greece. And her. Anyway, there's an allusion to him having gone into this area in Romans 15. So he may have, uh, instead of going straight into Greece, he may have gone north after he left uh, Thessalonica into a new province. This part of the journey could have taken as much as a year and a half, say from the year 55 in the summer to the latter part of the year 56. Then he does finally get down to lower Greece or Achaia, where he spends the winter of 56 to 57, in all likelihood. And he's about to set sail for Syria, remembering that uh, Antioch in Syria was really the place that started all of the work of evangelizing the nations outside of Palestine. He may have been planning to go there to give a report before heading down to Jerusalem. But he hears about this plot against him. The Judeans, again, are the enemy. This is, again, quite in contrast to the Asiarchs trying to protect him. Just a little bit ago, the Judeans have a plot to assassinate him in all likelihood, or at least kidnap and arrest him. And so he leaves the party that, that is probably setting sail and goes back the way that he came by uh, land, backwards through Macedonia, back around the Ark towards Philippi. And his traveling companions are, are mentioned here. Timothy being the most famous one. Uh, interesting, I never realized that Titus is never mentioned in the book of Acts for some reason. And those scholars have spent years and years arguing about why Luke doesn't include Titus by name in, in his history here. But Trophimus we hear about, and some of these other names pop up from time to time. They went ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Troas would have been the place across the water from Philippi, as you crossed back over into Asia, Troas was the little town there, which I assume today would be part of Istanbul, or at least in the near vicinity. So he got there. Uh, eventually, it took uh, five days to cross over. This is just a little short strait of water, so we all assume that the winds were extremely contrary to cause it to take five days to get from Philippi to Troas because it's not a very long distance. And then uh, the party stayed there seven days. We being used by Luke, so we can assume that Luke is part of this party even though he doesn't mention himself by name as part of the party. The seven days may coincide with the days of unleavened bread or the Passover observance back in Judea and Palestine, or it may be that he got there just after the saints had finished their weekly assembly and wanted to wait until the next time they gathered, uh, which would have been a full uh, week later. So anyway, a lot of things happen here in this one paragraph. It covers hundreds and hundreds of miles and months of time condensed down here into just a few sentences. 
All right, any thoughts or comments on this? I, I think this will be a good place to break for the week here. Okay, Mark. Well, thanks so much. That was a great study, and thanks for the input, uh, particularly from William. Look forward to continuing on. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.